Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. Father, we thank you for the way that you blessed our Trunk or Treat event on Friday. Uh, Father, it was truly wonderful to see all the people who were involved in that, and all the people who came from our neighborhood. And, and Father, we just thank you for being able to provide a, a, a safe and positive environment for people on that night, which oftentimes is not a very wholesome night. And Father, we just pray that you were glorified by what happened here. And Father, as we look forward to our Pack the Pulpit Sunday, just pray, Father, that you will help us all to have generous hearts, help us to think about all the people who are hungry in our neighborhood that we can help out and so that we can show the love of Jesus to them. Father, I thank you for this church family here, for the love that we have for each other, for the love that we have for you. And Father, we thank you for your story, for the word that's been passed down to us so that we can learn more about you, so we can see you work for and with your people over centuries. And Father, we thank you for being active today in our lives. And we just pray, Father, that our lights will shine to the dark world around us so that people can see you and see Jesus through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been moving pretty quickly through God's story, and we've been watching God work for the benefit of his people. And as we've done that, we've been focusing on how our individual stories find their meaning and their purpose in God's story. We began at creation in the paradise of the garden where we saw the world and we saw life the way that God always intended for it to be. And then we watched rebellion bring paradise crashing down and Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and they entered a world that was very far from paradise. And the world outside the garden continued to deteriorate until God's good creation had been replaced by evil and hostility. And God then sent a great purging flood that came with a hope of a new beginning with Noah and his ark. But the hope that was contained in the ark was short-lived and people moved further and further away from paradise and further away from their God. And then we watched God as he reached out to Abraham with a missional call to be the light to the nations and to bring blessings to the nations. And God promised Abraham that he would give him many descendants and he would give those descendants a land that they could call their very own. And we watched as God was working to keep those promises through Isaac and Jacob and through Joseph in Egypt as he brought God's blessings to the nations and to Abraham's descendants by rescuing them in the midst of a terrible famine and drought. But as generations passed and rulers changed in Egypt, Abraham's descendants went from being honored guests there to people who were enslaved threats to Egypt. And we saw Moses quite reluctantly accept God's mission to set his people free. And Moses' rescue mission culminated in the Passover story as Abraham's descendants finally left Egypt free at last. And they were on their way to Canaan. That was the land that had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. But that journey was interrupted as God brought spiritual formation and he brought spiritual discipline to the grumbling Israelites. So after a year at Mount Sinai and 40 years in the desert... Now they're under the leadership of Joshua and God's mighty hand led Abraham's people finally back to Canaan. And then last week we watched as Israel repeated the judges cycle. A cycle of apostasy by the people. Then followed by anger and punishment from God. And then 
the people would cry out to God and then God would once more rescue his people through a judge. And then we saw Israel reject God and his judges when they asked Samuel for a king. And we saw God relent and give them Saul until Saul also turned away from God. And then God turned to David. And then when David died, his son Solomon became king and then he too turned away from God and God turned away from Solomon. And when Solomon died, Israel, the nation that had a divided heart, became a divided nation with kings to the north and kings to the south. And because of their division, they were no longer the light that God called them to be. It was divided to the point that their light was eclipsed by the darkness of the nations that surrounded them. And that's where we left the story last week. With a kingdom divided and with Abraham's descendants once more far from their God and far from paradise. And as we ended last week, we left with a couple of questions that were swirling around in our heads. We asked the question, with a kingdom now divided, will Israel once more cry out to their God? And we also asked the question, and if they do cry out to their God, will God once more come to the rescue? Is God still in the rescue business? So with those questions fresh on our minds, let's begin today's chapter of God's story by spending a few minutes setting the stage by taking a look at each part of that divided kingdom. We'll start with the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was also known as Israel and less commonly as Ephraim. The northern kingdom contained 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Its capital was Samaria. And over its 210-year history, it had kings from nine different dynasties, kings from nine different families. In all, Israel had 20 different kings, and the Bible doesn't have anything good to say about any of them. And it isn't like God just abandoned Israel after the division. No, God, through the prophets, repeatedly warned Israel that they must turn their hearts back to God. And if they didn't do that, they would face devastating defeat at the hands of the cruel Assyrians. But those repeated warnings were ignored. And they did experience the wrath of the Assyrians. And they were conquered. And they were deported. And they were dispersed across nations until they just passed from existence. They were no more. Meanwhile, down south was the kingdom known as Judah which contained the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And it retained Jerusalem as its capital. Judah had just one dynasty. All of its kings were from the family of King David. And over its 425-year existence, Judah also had 20 different kings. And the Bible has something good to say about eight of those kings. So when you think about it, Having Israel around was kind of like having a really naughty brother up north that makes Judah look good by comparison. But Judah only looked good by comparison to Israel. And they too were repeatedly warned. They were warned by Isaiah and other prophets. They were warned that they would suffer the same fate as their estranged and naughty brothers up north unless they repented, unless they turned their hearts back to God. And we see that God's mighty hand did spare Judah. And it did spare King Hezekiah, defeat at the hands of the Assyrians. But Judah and its kings ultimately ignored God's warnings. And they were defeated by a new world power. They were defeated by the Babylonians. 
And then the people of Judah were also deported. They were deported to live in Babylonian exile. And exile in Babylon was different than exile under Assyria. The the exiles from Judah were allowed to maintain their cultural and their religious identities while they were in Babylon. And while they were exiled, their religion underwent a really radical transformation. The people were removed from Jerusalem. They were removed from the destroyed temple. And Judaism, what we know today as Orthodox Judaism, developed. That's the religion that Jesus encountered when he came to this earth. It's a religion that looks very different than the religion that was practiced by Abraham's descendants before the exile. Some key things that happened while they were in exile. They adopted the Aramaic religion. The Aramaic language, I mean. The language that was spoken by Jesus. That becomes the Jewish language. And also something that happened is powerful scholars and teachers of God's law, known as scribes, they were developed while they were in exile. They emerged as the leading figures of Judaism. And something else that developed was synagogues. Places of worship that were never mentioned in the Old Testament, those developed while they were in exile. They became the central point of Jewish communities, both cultural and religious. So synagogues developed during that time. And it's really fascinating to watch that the people who continually turned their hearts to the gods of the nations while they were surrounded by them in their own promised land now begin to turn their hearts back to God when they're removed from the promised land. And so when we read the book of Daniel, we get a fascinating look at one man's experience as an exiled Jew in Babylon. See, Daniel was one of the best and the brightest of Judah. And he held important positions under three different kings and two different empires. And those glimpses into life as a Babylonian exile are really fascinating. But what the book of Daniel really does for us, it gives us examples of what it looks like and what it means to live with hearts that have been captured by God. Because Daniel and his friends live with hearts that have been captured by God. They live lives that fully trust in God. When we turn to the book of Daniel, it starts pretty quickly with a three-year Babylonian training camp. That's where Daniel and his friends are. His friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they're immersed in learning the language and the literature and the customs of Babylon so they can effectively serve in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. But we find out right away it's not going to be easy for these young men to faithfully follow God and also faithfully serve the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar in his court. It's not going to be easy because choosing God will mean defying the king. And defying the king usually comes with very unpleasant circumstances. We see Daniel and his friends pass their very first test. They pass the test when they refuse to eat the unclean food that comes from the king's table. And instead they eat vegetables and just drink water. And then God blesses them with superior health. And also with superior wisdom and superior understanding. So that they're elevated in the king's court. And throughout the book of Daniel, we see that pattern continue over and over again. Whenever these men are faced with a choice between going along with the crowd or going with God, 
their God, the one who has their hearts. These faithful servants of God follow their hearts and repeatedly choose God over the king. And their faithful God is faithful to them. God protects them. God blesses them. Let's look at just one dramatic example from the book of Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar has an enormous gold idol made, he makes a demand. He makes a demand of all the people. Let's read in Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He says, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations and men of every nation and men of every language. As soon as you hear music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. It's pretty clear what he's demanding. When you hear music, you will bow down and you will worship or else you will be killed in a blazing furnace. And as you might expect, everybody does exactly what they're commanded to do. Everyone that is except for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And they do this, according to the king's astrologers, they pay no attention to the king. They neither serve the king's gods nor worship the image of gold that the king set up. And that makes King Nebuchadnezzar very angry. And an outraged Nebuchadnezzar summons the three men and he reiterates his commands and he gives them one last chance. He says this to them in verse 15. He says, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. We'll forget about the past. It'll be all right. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God will be able? Well, the God that will be able is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That God is able. Read with me in verse 16. The three men replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. King doesn't handle this very well. He furiously follows up on his threat. He first cranks up the heat in the furnace to a level so hot that the soldiers that are escorting the three men to the furnace are burned up by the heat. But something unusual happens. Something unusual happens with the three bound men. Because the look, the God, the king looks inside the furnace. He sees not three, but he sees four unharmed figures. They're walking around in the fire and the fourth figure in the words of the king looks like a son of the gods. So the king calls out to the three men. He calls them out of the furnace. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of the fire. And they come out of the fire and they are unharmed. As the Bible says, not a hair on their heads was singed and their robes weren't even scorched. And then Nebuchadnezzar, an idol-worshipping pagan king, gives a beautiful testimony to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 28, 
Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their god. I just hope that we today can see it as clearly as Nebuchadnezzar saw it back then. Because what we should see is this is what it looks like to live with hearts that have been captured by God. See, these men, they came from a divided nation, but their hearts hadn't been divided. Their hearts belonged to God. They were taken away from their home, but they didn't leave their God back home. They took their God with them. This is what it looks like to shine God's light to the nations. I want a faith like that. Don't you want a faith like that? A a faith that boldly proclaims to those around us through our actions that our God is able. Our God is able. So let's turn back to Isaiah. Because Isaiah has some things to teach us as well. See, Isaiah, as presented first, is a book of warnings. The first half of the book is all about warnings. Repent or else, Judah. And Daniel is a book of examples. Daniel is, this is what living a life with an undivided heart looks like. But both of the books are also books of tremendous comfort. They're books of comfort because Isaiah and Daniel both prophetically look forward to the light. They give comfort and hope to people who are in a desperate circumstance because they look forward to Jesus. Isaiah and Daniel both look ahead to the incomparable light that will come to rescue God's people. In fact, Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel because he talks so much about the Messiah to come. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Isaiah. See, Isaiah focuses on the Messiah, and he focuses on the comfort that the Messiah will bring to God's people. Isaiah's message from God is that God will not forget his people. God will be faithful. He will hear their cries, and he will once again rescue. So Isaiah, after casting a very bleak vision of Judah's present circumstance and an even bleaker vision of what awaits in the near future, Under Babylon. Isaiah then turns his attention to the future. He looks past their present circumstances. And he looks past the near future and he looks ahead to deliverance. He looks ahead to rescue. In chapters 44 and 45 of Isaiah, he assures Judah that their exile won't last forever. They won't be in Babylon forever. And he says that because Babylon won't be in power forever. That kingdom won't last. He tells them that God will lift up another king. Cyrus is coming. He'll come from another nation. He'll come from Persia. And that Cyrus and Persia will conquer Babylon and allow God's people to return to the promised land. And he will allow God's people to rebuild their temple. And since we know history, we know that's exactly what happened. After some 70 years of Jewish exile, King Cyrus and the Persians do defeat the Babylonians. And as we read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, many Jews did return to Jerusalem and they did rebuild the temple. 
But Isaiah doesn't stop providing comfort there. He looks beyond that even. See, Isaiah looks beyond Cyrus to ultimate deliverance for God's people. And that deliverance is by God's servant, by God's suffering servant. Isaiah looks forward to the Messiah, the rescuer who's greater than Noah, the rescuer who's greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, even greater than David. We obviously don't have time to explore in any detail at all the wonderful picture that's painted by Isaiah, the Messiah who's to come, and the hope and the peace and the salvation that the Messiah will bring. But I want you to know that Isaiah's words were like water to a very thirsty people. They were like food to very hungry people. They were like rest to very weary people. And they were that because they promised that God wasn't through keeping his promises. His words promised that God would rescue again. They promised that there was still hope for God's people. And for a people whose situation appeared hopeless... Isaiah's vision of the Messiah and the life to come allowed them to look forward with anticipation of better days yet to come. And Isaiah wasn't the only source of hope and comfort. Even Daniel provided hope for God's people. See, Daniel also looked beyond the dark circumstances of Babylonian exile and he communicated hope about the future for God's people. See, Daniel, like Joseph, like Joseph before him, was blessed by God with the ability to interpret dreams. And the similarities don't end there. They both were able to interpret dreams of the kings under whom they served. And Daniel's interpretation of one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams is a remarkable forward look at events that are yet to come. The story unfolds like this in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a very troubling dream, and he really wants to know what that dream means. So he summons together his magicians, his enchanters, his sorcerers, his astrologers, all of the people he thought might be able to interpret his dream for him. And then that group has what seems like a fairly reasonable request of the king. They say, tell us the dream, and then we'll interpret it. But Nebuchadnezzar has very different plans. He wants them to first tell him the dream. Tell me the dream that I dreamed and then interpret it. And he promises that if they're not able to do that, they'll all be killed and all their homes will be destroyed. But if they're able to do this very difficult task, they'll be rewarded greatly. They'll be honored greatly. So this group of people does what any group of people would do who fear for their lives. They begin to negotiate. They negotiate with the king. They try to get him to tell them the dream first so then they can come up with an interpretation and he refuses to do so. And when negotiation doesn't work, they decide to try something kind of novel, kind of unique. They decide to try telling the truth. And they tell the truth beginning in verse 10. They speak to the king and they say, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. So Nebuchadnezzar is furious 
at this truth-telling. And he issues a decree to put all the wise men to death. All the wise men. And that includes Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Daniel hears about the decree. He enlists the help of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He enlists them to plead with God to reveal the mystery and preserve their lives. And that night, as Daniel is sleeping, God reveals the mystery of the dream to him. So then Daniel turns to God in praise. In verse 21, he says, I thank you and I praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power and you have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So Daniel presents himself to Nebuchadnezzar and this exchange occurs in verse 26. The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has shown what will happen in days to come. So then Daniel reveals the dream. There's a huge, dazzling statue in the dream. The statue has a head of gold. It has a chest and arms of silver. It has a belly and thighs of bronze. And its legs are made of iron. And its feet are made partly of clay and partly of iron. And in verse 34, Daniel says to the king, he says, while you were watching, a rock was cut out but not by human hand. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and it filled the entire earth. So that's the picture Something that looked maybe like the statue you see on the screen behind me. Made up of these various metals. Strong, powerful, and large. A huge statue. And then it's completely destroyed. It's obliterated. I have a hard time saying that word. Obliterated by a humble rock. So where's the hope in all of that? Well, the hope is in the interpretation of the dream. So we need to know that this is a kingdom dream. Daniel reveals that the gold head is Babylon and it's Nebuchadnezzar sending strong and power at the top. But it won't last forever because he reveals that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as a world power is going to be replaced by a different kingdom. It's going to be replaced by the silver which is Persia and Cyrus the same Persia and Cyrus that allowed God's people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But that kingdom won't last forever. That kingdom too will be replaced. It will be replaced by the bronze. And the bronze is the Greek empire. But that empire won't last forever either. That empire will also be replaced. It will be replaced by one more kingdom. The iron kingdom, the Roman empire the divided Roman Empire, the empire that controlled the world when Jesus came and lived among men. 
And that's all interesting. It's interesting because what Daniel prophesied came true. But what's most interesting is that common stone, that rock that's talked about. That's what really interests us. See, in the interpretation of the dream, that rock comes and destroys all those other kingdoms. It leaves them without a trace in the world. And then it grows into a great kingdom that rules over the entire earth, fills the earth. And that rock, as you've probably guessed, is Jesus. See, it's the stone that establishes the enduring kingdom. The kingdom that still stands today. The stone is Jesus Christ. The stone is King Jesus who reigns over all the earth. King Jesus who's the hope of all the nations. So Daniel's able to look forward. Daniel who represents a people who no longer have a nation. Daniel who represents a people who no longer have a kingdom. He's able, like Isaiah, to look forward with hope. With hope to events that are to come. With hope about the Messiah and his kingdom, which is to come. So we leave the Old Testament. And as the Old Testament ends, the people are scattered. They're without a nation. They're without a kingdom. But the Old Testament doesn't end without hope. It does end with questions, though. Because the hope that the Old Testament ends with is unfulfilled hope. And the prophetic promises of a new rescuer are unfulfilled promises as the Old Testament ends. So as we leave behind God's story as told in the Old Testament, we're leaving behind a story that's in search of a conclusion. It's in search of a conclusion because we leave Abraham's descendants with many unanswered questions. And probably the two most important unanswered questions are these. Where is the Messiah that's talked about? Where is that rescuer who's coming from God? And the second question is, where is the new creation where peace and hope reign? Where is that that Isaiah and other prophets have talked about? And I hope you are like me. I hope you're looking forward to the next chapter in God's story. Because the next chapter of God's story is full of answers. The answer to every question is in the next chapter of God's story. And the answer to every question is Jesus. Jesus, who is the light to come. The answer to the questions is Jesus, who is sent by God to once more rescue his people by capturing their hearts. So let's all plan on being back together next week as we look forward to the light who is to come. And this morning, let's end our time together. Let's end our time together rejoicing that we live in the light of the one who has come. Let's stand up and let's sing together and rejoice in Jesus' presence and in Jesus' light. Please stand and let's sing. Sing, Lord, like a shepherd.